On this episode of Stuff That Matters, we take you into the life of a parent whose child has dealt with mental health and someone who has navigated the system. This perspective comes from Nina Nally Robinson, the mother of former New Hope resident and ultimate success story, Kiara Grace Nally. Kiara has donated plenty of her time giving back to New Hope, having spoken to staff and current residents twice. She was our fourth guest on this podcast back in August and has been an absolute rock star in life. Her mom was no different as she graciously shared her experiences and her own journey as Kiara's mom. We dive into it all, first becoming Kiara's mother, living in Massachusetts, moving to North Carolina, coping with her daughter's mental health timeline, which ultimately led to New Hope, what things were like post-New Hope, having simultaneous pregnancies with Kiara, and sharing all the amazing moments that life has provided in the last decade plus. Some great insights and personal accounts. If you're a parent or if you know someone who is in the shoes that she was once in, you might relate to a lot of what she has to say. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with Nina Nally Robinson. Episode of Stuff That Matters. Today, we are so honored to be joined by Nita Nally Robinson. She is the mother of Kiara Grace Nally, uh, former resident of New Hope and uh, former podcast guest. If you uh, haven't listened to the her episode, it was our fourth episode of this podcast. Came out back in, on August 22nd, so please go give it a listen. Uh, Nita, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Nita... Awesome. Uh, I, I, you go ahead, Patrick. I'll yeah, just talk I, I, a little bit. No, no, it's okay. Uh, so, just briefly, uh, you know, obviously introduce you as Kiara's mom, but you're obviously you're probably so much more than that. Uh, just again, if you can, just briefly, uh, you know, explain to us, you know, uh, who you are a little bit, uh, you know, w- w- the work that you do today, um, you know, and, and we'll we'll go from there. Sure, I am Nina Kiara Grace's mother. She's my oldest child of two. Uh, she's thirty, and then I have a six-year-old as well. I'm also a grandmother. <laughs> I'm also a grandmother. Uh, Kiara is a mom, and we had overlapping pregnancies, so our girls are six months apart in age and in first grade this year. That's crazy. So that's really exciting and wonderful, and very special that we get to raise them um, simultaneously. Um, I didn't have her help round one as an adult, so it, it's really cool this time around. Um, and then I also work in the nanny agents. Um, field. And I have been a nanny for three decades, um, working with children of all different ages, of all different abilities. And right now my little charge is two and a half years old and it keeps me very busy. That's good stuff. So did, so tell us a little bit about, uh, your journey to here where you are today. We're obviously connected, right? We have a common bond and, um, as I was saying to you a little bit off off air, off camera, you know, we have 130-ish kids that we're serving today, all with family members, parents, legal guardians, aunts, uncles, you know, adults in their lives that um, where their child's away from home and getting services. So maybe maybe give our listeners a little bit of an insight to you and how how your journey maybe before and then now after your daughter received services with us. Is that okay? Absolutely. So after we went through, we jumped through many, many hoops and sought help in a lot of places before we landed at New Hope. Sometimes it takes, it surely takes a village, but sometimes it takes multiple places to find the right fit for your family, of course. Um, But New Hope Carolina was our final destination and it was phenomenal in a whole bunch of different ways for our family. But I think the key thing was my daughter was finally ready to make change. Her hormones were leveling off, which helped tremendously. And then she personally chose to go off medication and find other tools 
to help her get through her day-to-day struggles and challenges. And so since then, and that was December, 2009, that she graduated from the program, um, of course, there have been hiccups uh, that is life. And that is the, the mental wellness uh, story of most, but she's been able to um, always go back to the tools that she lo- has learned um, DBT skills being the primary um, and then just her own personal um, self-regulation, uh, checking in with herself um, for her, uh, you know, journaling and, music writing and spending time with friends and those kinds of things have always been very positive avenues for her to come back to her her authentic self, to self-regulate, reboot, if you will. And so she's been, I've witnessed her continually tap into those skills um, and advocate towards for friends and other people in her circle who have shared their story with her and um, of course, we collectively have acquired new skills and our relationship has changed tremendously <laughs> um, with lots and lots of therapy, both in home, in office, individual, family, all of the above, just tapping into all the resources available so that we can um, find all of the proper uh, ways to be as healthy, you know, as individuals and collectively as mother and daughter, because we're very close. And her coming of age story was very, of course, or not as an understatement, straining out on our friendship, part of our mother daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call this a coupleship because I had her so young and we grew up together. <laughs> now, Nita, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to try to, I guess, go on uh, somewhat of a timeline here and create this arc, so to speak. So, going back to when you first became a mother, uh, Kiara's childhood prior to her her mental health journey. Um, you know, what, what was raising her like, uh, you know, childhood for Kiara? Um, just, you know, talk about that a little when you, when you first became a mother. I found out I was expectant with her when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, it was a surprise. It was unplanned. Uh, but it also was the happiest time of my life. Um, I personally was kind of lost and I didn't know what my purpose was. And then it all, all of a sudden became known to me. I'm going to be a mom. Okay. And then everything kind of <laughs> was built around that. Um, so that was September, 1993 that she entered the world. And, uh, with the help of my parents, um, I was able to kind of launch into parenthood relatively smoothly, um, at such a young age. And, uh, and that was extremely helpful. Uh, at the time we were living in Massachusetts and, um, I would say that because she, for her first 24 years, she was an only child, um, Sometimes it was difficult to know if it was an only child situation or was she truly experiencing something that um, might be detrimental long term. Social anxiety was not diagnosed until much older, but looking back, hindsight being 2020, I would say around age three or four, she started showing signs of that. Like when we would get together as an extended family, feeling overwhelmed, needing to be removed from the overstimulation and such. Um, but uh, there was no crystal globe and we didn't know, you know, what she was experiencing at that time. So we did the best with the knowledge that we had then to kind of help her. And um, I was really grateful to be close to family at that time. Yeah. You're speaking with a fellow Massachusetts guy. So that's really cool to find that out. But I'm from the Western part of the state where folks don't even recognize it as part of Massachusetts. So we'll leave that for another day. So were we Amherst. I'm Springfield. You're Springfield. So we're very close. Yeah. I just tell people imagine Southern Vermont because they think Boston area and that's not it at all. (laughs) Yeah. I was just up there visiting family and friends. So it's cool that we made that connection here. Yes, absolutely. So talk a little bit about uh, how important your parents, you mentioned your parents, right? How important their support was in your, you know, early on in your family's journey, you know? My parents, um, it was, I mean, well, it was both my my mom's and my brother and my sister-in-law were very present and active, still are present and active in our lives. Um, but when we all lived in Massachusetts, within a you know, 15, 20 minute drive of each other, they were able to see CR, you know, weekly and and were a lot more involved. We're now in North Carolina, so we've got the six state uh separation. And um 
my mom actually has, um, let's see, what were, she, she went to school for psychology and gerontology. So she worked with seniors. And so she was always injecting, you know, her book smart stuff. And then because we have a lot of mental illness in our extended family, of course, each of the generations grew up around it. It's been dealt with in different ways throughout the decades. Uh, But nonetheless, my grandfather was diagnosed with manic depression or bipolar disorder, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, in the 40s. Um, And so my mom being the youngest of six and the last one left behind when all of her siblings went off to school and he being the most ill at that point um, had to take on a lot of parent. It was like a role reversal for her. So a lot of parenting stuff. Um, So it was helpful from that standpoint that she had had that experience. Of course, being a child experiencing that with a parent versus a grandparent removed and experiencing with your grandchild, it's slightly different. Uh, I think a little closer to home is a little more raw when it was her grandbaby and the frustration that here we are history repeating itself. And then also realizing that medication hadn't come, but so far, and also the stigma hadn't changed much. So there was a lot of tug of war there emotionally, of course. Well, kind of touching this a little bit, but obviously society as a whole has become much more aware um, to you know mental health, um, you know specifically younger kids, uh, you know in school systems and whatnot. Putting more of an emphasis on that, uh, but obviously you know back Kiara was you know first dealing with her uh, mental health journey back in like you said the mid two thousands. Um, you know things were a lot different back then. When did you first start to become aware? of uh you know what she was going through and with some of those early conversations between you two uh when she expressed maybe some of the things she was dealing with um you know what what, what was that like first for, first on um i think initially because she didn't really know how to articulate what it was that she was experiencing and i wasn't able to read between the lines because it was mm-hmm. my first rodeo some of it was lost and we lost a little bit of time before i could seek help for her um, sadly, and then we had to play catch up. So I would say third, fourth grade, and then through seventh was kind of the snowball effect. And from seventh grade through, oh gosh, probably sophomore year of high school, it was just really, really intense. We felt like we were in a pressure cooker basically. Um, and, uh, I have to say for her and everybody, literally everybody, um, is so different. And so this is not a generic uh, response at all. But for her, the medication made things worse. Um, My theory was they were meant for and made for the adult physiology and an anatomy and not so much the ever-changing adolescent body. And so the side effects were often far worse than her symptoms were. But as a parent, it was very difficult because I didn't know you know, what would happen if she went off them or if we switch. So it was just very, very scary, certainly. And um, kind of, uh, oh, it was just an intense time for certain, precarious to say the least. And and I would imagine, and I don't know when you guys transitioned from Massachusetts to North Carolina. Was it during that seventh grade to sophomore year before that time? Third grade. She was on the cusp of turning nine when we moved here. So we had been here a bit. One of the things I get all the time from callers into New Hope is our state's got no services for, you know, like everybody thinks their state is the worst in providing services for kids. Right. And Mm. no value judgment there, but that's everybody's perception. And I get it. Right. I have a brother who I help who needs services. And I live in North Carolina and there are times I think we're the worst state for this. <laughs> and, and I actually know better cause I know some other states. So I guess where I'm going with this is um, that transition from being in the Northeast to North Carolina did, was family left behind. Did you lose that? Some of those, re- some of those close familial resources or did your entire family move with you? How did that transition work? So that is a great question. And I, and it's actually come from family as well, because a lot think that she would not have had similar challenges if we had stayed up North. And I know for a fact that that, that is not, would not have been the answer for her, but it was a huge move. 
Um, it was one that I chose to make because I wasn't as impressed with some of the family ties that had been established and what was happening in some of those relationships. So I chose to spread my wings. I was 28 at the time, spread my wings, explore a little. I actually married for the first and only time. Um, my new husband and I decided to move south. Um, he had a sister here at the time and uh, the cost of living was going to be less. We just mm -hmm. felt like there were a lot of perks, but yet we were close enough um, to fly home or have people visit us and all of that. Um, you can still drive home in a day, right? It's not an easy yeah. drive, but you can still yeah. get home. <laughs> yes. So absolutely, we all left. Family, friends, our church, uh, all the extracurricular activities, the familiar school. I mean, everything was dropped, left. We, we said our goodbyes and we went on an adventure. And I think that initially, well, from my perspective, I think Kiara has a slightly different one, as she should and would. Um, of the three of us, it seemed like she transitioned the best. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't know. Some things became known to me later. Like, I didn't realize that she was being picked on at school for certain things and and, you know, um, we're multiracial and we, she was in a predominantly black school. And I think some of that was challenging, you know, so there's always the behind scenes stuff that you don't always come to learn until later as a parent. Um, but she seemed happy. She seemed healthy. She was coming to accept the fact that she was sharing me with someone else, which is very, very difficult for her. Right. Um, and. And then just life happens, I guess. Yeah. And precocious puberty started trickling in and hormones a lot. I think a, a very, a huge part of her journey, I believe, was how her body just kind of went into shock as puberty hit. Um, and I say that because she had a laundry list of diagnoses and much medication, um, you know, prescribed and was able to go off all of it and self-regulate once her hormones leveled off. So I don't think that that would just like miraculously happen if she truly had some of these underlying um, diagnoses still prevalent. Um, so that was a surprise for us. Um, and it always left me uh, kind of feeling like I was on the edge of my seat because at any time I was feeling like it's gonna happen again. It's going to, you know, like that, that uh, monster lurking in the darkness type thing. Um, she spoke to that a little on the podcast when you interviewed her, that for me, in certain circumstances, if she comes to me with sharing, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that, I will directly go back to, you said this to me in 2000, et cetera, and then this happened. When in actuality, it's a different time. We have a different set of school uh, tools, rather. Um, and she's just sharing that she, in the moment, is having a small challenge, not a grandiose, this is going to be, you know, life altering challenge, but it's hard to not knee jerk and go, okay, what do you need from me? Oh, you're, you know, right. <laughs> I got people speed dial, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh, you're in North Carolina at this point, and uh, I guess I'll now transition this to New Hope. Uh, when did you first learn of New Hope? Uh, and then ultimately, you know, what led to, you know, choosing to send Kiara to New Hope. Um, obviously, I'm sure it was a, a series of, uh, of things, but uh, yeah, ultimately, you know, what made you aware of New Hope and realize that this that was the best course of action? I was trying to remember how I first learned of New Hope. It was either from a local um, psych hospital or the previous uh, behavioral modification facility that she was at. I don't really recall um, I do know that I was calling around to lots and lots of places. And I mean, this is pre-Google, you know, so right. <laughs> very, very different time. And it was much more of a, you had to know the right people and network and get the right person on the phone to mm -hmm. even learn about some of this. So the times have changed. Uh, and that is a great thing for certain. Um, but e even, know, with, even with that, and I don't mean to cut you off, but you are right. Google being able to search stuff online is very helpful, right? Um, yeah. But it also can lead you down these rabbit holes too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, New Hope is primarily a provider of services for youth who have Medicaid, right? We tend, that's where we lean in. Those are the kids we're serving. Not everybody, but most, right? And um, 
I'll have parents of kids who uh, the parent will call me and they might be in Charlotte, North Carolina or, you know, Greenville, South Carolina. And they'll say this, you know, my child's in Utah right now. And I, and I'll say, Ooh, how did you get, how'd they get to Utah? And oftentimes the answer is, well, I just Googled and found the first place that popped up. And I'm like, ay, 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 you know, like some of that can lead you to lead you a little bit astray. And, and I think, and I'm cutting you off from your answer, but one of the things I've learned intimately over the 15, 14 years of an answer on the phone at New Hope and Helping Families is some, you just don't know what you don't know. And I'll teach parents on the phone or I'll do my best to teach. Here are these list of questions you should be asking every provider you call. Yes. Um, Cause it's peeling an onion to get to where, what hopefully your, your kiddo needs. So I, yes. I went on a, off on a tangent there, but I can, I can imagine searching for the right provider, searching for the right help was difficult. It was extremely challenging. And it's not like you're, I was not presented a printout when she was at, you know, on her eighth visit at our local psych hospital saying, you know, these are the various places you should look into for long-term care. Um, and it's ironic that you should say Utah because that is part of our story. <laughs> she was in Utah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I forgot. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, she sure was. <laughs> that was unintentional. <laughs> yeah. She was in Utah. And, um, and sometimes it's, you have to, well, obviously you have to know to, to request, but bed, bed available. Availability. That's huge too. Timing is everything, right? First, you got to know where to look. Then you have to see if they're, you know, have anybody to, to take your family's age range and, and, and gender and all these different things. Um, then you got the insurance piece or self-pay, Medicaid, all these different things. There are so many moving parts. Um, and it would be a lot more simplistic if there was, you know, an ongoing current list of, you know, uh, treatment. I, I don't know if you're calling yourselves facilities or what do you, I want the verbiage. You're fine. We call ourselves, we're licensed as a psychiatric residential treatment facility. So calling us a facility is right on. Okay. Treatment center is fine too. Okay. It's very interesting because in order to find the right treatment facility for your child, you have to first know, you know, where you're looking uh, that they themselves have space for your family. And even if they do have a bed, maybe it isn't a good fit for your family. So right. you need to research, read the reviews and um, learn more because it is not a cookie cutter answer ever. And if anybody ever tries to present that, they're, they're you know, they're well off the mark. <laughs> yeah, that's 100% correct. Um, in this world, there are I'm sure there are providers that'll just look to put, it's called putting a head to bed, right? We're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to admit this kid, whether we have the right program or the right fit for this child. And the desperation that I see today versus 10 years ago or 14 years ago, availability is huge. And the reality is there's not many beds available. And sometimes parents will just, well, this is better than this is better than being in an unsafe situation. And oftentimes it is. It might not yes. be the perfect program, but they're in a setting that mm-hmm. uh, can provide some oversight and structure that the home can't. Absolutely. And I think that that wasn't intentionally what we were choosing for our family, but that's what ended up happening because I was no longer able to keep her safe in our home. And I wasn't able to keep myself safe with her in our home, frankly. So, I mean, it was a challenging time. And I was thinking, had I had other children in the home, the the predicament that those parents are in, you know, to keep everybody safe and meet everybody's needs when there's genuine safety concerns involved, that has got to be gut-wrenching. I only had her to focus on in that one moment. And and I was single during most of this time because it just, my, my uh, marriage fizzled out and I was in another relationship that wasn't meant to go anywhere. And I just dropped everything and said, I need to focus solely on my child. She needs me. I need to give her my everything so that I know at the end of the day I have, and I don't regret any of that for a second. It's exactly what we collectively needed. New Hope. 
our name, our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin, New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope. So, I, I guess my, my question now is, knowing what you know now, uh, you know, if you were to speak to a parent dealing with, you know, a similar situation, obviously, like, you mentioned it's 2023, you know, a lot more now than you did back in 2008. Uh, but you know, if you were to speak to a parent who is going through a similar situation from, from, from the start to all the way to, you know, find the best form of treatment for their, for their, for their child, you know, what are some of the, the, the most important things you would tell them, uh, throughout the whole process, um, whether it's, you know, early on identifying, you know, what, what, what might be going on with their child. And then, you know, to, like I said, find, finding, the, the best resource, the best treatment for their child? Um, you know, so, some of the, the key tips you would provide to somebody. Mm -hmm. I think first and foremost, to focus on having a healthy relationship with your child so that if they have something happening with them or within their themselves, they feel comfortable and safe to bring it to you. And that has to start at a very young age, of course, to be most effective. Because had Kiara not spoken to me about hearing voices or feeling like somebody was going to harm her in her sleep. Um, you know, her own safety concerns when she's alone. Um, if I wasn't listening and I said, Oh, you have an imaginary friend or, or they're right. It's just hormones talking, or you just have, you're just really, really creative. If I had undermined and not really listened, I would have missed a lot and things might've gone South super, super fast. So I think being approachable and seeking um, support as a parent is really, really key because it's a very, it can be a very isolating experience. And you're not going to be able to speak with just anybody about these heavy, heavy situations, other parents that don't have similar um, dynamics in their household because you're going to end up comforting them and they're not going to have the tools to comfort you. So I was missing that piece. That was before social media, before support groups online and all these other things that I suspect are out there, which are phenomenal. But tapping into that so that you have a safe space, maybe it's two o'clock in the morning. Everybody you know is asleep. You're wide awake because you're afraid of your child uh, and circumstances are happening on the other side of the bedroom wall. You can go on your social media and say, this is what I'm experiencing. Um, so I would say those two elements are really, really detrimental. And then, um, obviously, the help of professionals. And uh, I wish that I had the wherewithal to research some of the side effects of some of the medication mm -hmm. that um, the psychiatrists were suggesting that my young teenage girl should be on. I trusted in blind faith, naively, but also knee-jerk response. You're the professional. I'm exhausted. Tell me how to fix this. and. And everybody will fall prey to that at some point because we only have but so much energy. But at the same time, if you have moment to pause 
or ask a family member to look into something and do and you know delegate some tasks to acquire more information to better advocate that would serve your child best um we got in a situation where you know my team my preteen team was lactating and we didn't even know it was a side effect because it was like a two to three percent chance and she was so upset because she thought she was pregnant or that I would think she was pregnant and that's not how breast milk comes in anyway but she didn't know so I mean that was layered on top of everything else we were going through and it could have been avoided for example um and then of course uh working with uh, insurance companies um I personally found that the insurance that we had at the time specifically when my daughter was in Utah and things may have changed since. I surely hope they do did. But she had to be deemed medically necessary to remain in treatment or they would no longer cover her care. Nothing's but changed. I, mother. What's that? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. But I knew as her mother that she was just using her intellect and her manipulation skills to walk the walk. But I knew she was going to come home, try to run away or whatever craziness she was choosing at the time behavior wise. Um, and so I had to go off of insurance for her and go into self-pay mode to keep her admitted to get her help. She's worth every penny, but that should not be the only resort. And and I'll tell you this, there's, you know, if we had a million uh listeners to this podcast, parent listeners to this podcast, whose kids who have been in a residential treatment center, they'd probably all be nodding their heads. It's, mm -hmm. it's a little bit maddening. I get that all the time. My kid manipulated their way out of this setting and they came home and they still are doing their maladaptive behaviors. Yes. Um, I wanted to circle back real quick on your number. I thought your answer, unbelievable and wonderful answer. And you started with I think is the key is building that healthy relationship with your child. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to reflect on that a little bit. Um, that to me is like the number one, <laughs> and maybe I'm wrong, right? What am I? I'm a bachelor's level guy. You know, what do I know? But if, if parents can build that healthy relationship with their child, where the child is not afraid to tell them anything. Mm -hmm. I had a friend in our neighborhood come to me because I'm, you know, they know I work for a mental health provider and their their 18 year old daughter who was away at college called and called her mother to say that she felt like hurting herself. Mm. And mom, you know, did the right thing and uh, got her connected to services where the college is and things worked out for the best. And mom was really came to me and was distraught about that situation. And, and I and I I get it. Right. But I yeah. said she called you. She yeah. called you. She called you to tell you that from college, that's a blessing. Like the, the feeling, that feeling she was having. Okay. But she, she called you and that's so important. So yes. I loved your answer and I loved where you, where you started it. I think that's awesome. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're supposed to know our children best out of everybody, right? And so if our children can feel safe to come to us, you know, that that hastens our ability to be able to seek help if help is necessary. But also knowing your child. So because sometimes they don't have the verbiage, they don't have the wherewithal. It's new to them, too. It's foreign to them, too. But to see behavior shifts, to to know who their friends are to be connected in school. Even as a single mother, I tried to stay connected with the school. I couldn't be a room parent. I couldn't do so many things. I had to work full time, right. I, but one person, but reach out. Now it's even easier. You got texting and, you know, touch points and email and all these things with teachers, but um, just being a part of their circle so that if anything is off, you're going to have that innate internal parental ding, 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 ding going off um, because, it's just so important. And the earlier intervention, the better, of course. Um, and so those are absolutely all just really, really phenomenal uh, building blocks and tools to acquire. And then the other piece, I was thinking, um, as that gets you kind of to treatment, and then medication and therapy, showing up for everything, of course. Um, visitations are challenging 
Visitations are very challenging. And you would think it's challenging because you're going to see your child that's in treatment. Yes, of course. For me, it was very challenging because of the um, confidentiality for the children and liability stuff that I couldn't know who her roommate was. We had to see other children not have visitors be in the same space. And that has got to hurt to know no one's shown up to visit you. I don't know if visitations have changed, but for us, that was really, really difficult because I would have said the more the merrier. Now I know we got safety concerns there too, but things, things I think have changed for the better in that aspect. And I'm going to let Patrick jump in, but over the course of the 14 years I've been at New Hope, we've really embraced breaking, we call it, um, there's a national initiative called the Building Bridges Initiative, which is really um, a mod, a model of uh, an approach to breaking down the walls of residential to be a little bit more open to obviously approved caregivers, loved ones, so that there's less of that distance in trying to break that distance down and, and access, right? Um, yeah. So when I started in residential many, many, many years ago, like phone calls didn't happen. Like, no, it's best if the kid doesn't call home. It's just going to not help that child do well in the program. We're going to have visitation at the end of the six weeks. And it was, I look back on that. I'm like, oh my Lord, we were, <laughs> what were we thinking? Um, so it has changed. I think if, you know, I think if you were to redo and 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 be in our facility today, it would look a lot different. Honestly. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, but that so that was just that was just a painful piece because um, I'm sure it had to do with staffing. Why the children were, you know, it was like in a gymnasium, and there were children in one half and us in the other, and they were doing their independent play. But it just felt like don't even have them witness <laughs> other people having their visitation because my heart just, you know, and uh, and then she'd be like trying to discreetly put. So that's why, you know, that kind of thing, because you want to know your child's around. It doesn't matter where they are. You you want to know you can put a face to the stories. And um, and a lot of times she would, you know, even if it was temporary, you know, your your roommates become your new family away from home. And so whether you're getting along or not, they're a part of your journey. And so that part was challenging. Um, and then uh, for me, with my child, um, she was not a ward of the state. She was not a foster child. She wasn't anything. I was her mom and I was showing up to help. And a lot of times there was no protocol for me um, and like receiving calls or updates and all these. A lot of times my question would be like, okay, well, what am I going to find out and say, well, I don't know. <laughs> and so that part was very interesting too. I'm assuming that has since changed. Um, but I became grossly aware of how many children were in from the foster um, DSS, all of this part of, you know, state work were in these, treatment facilities. And, and I was thinking some of the whys must be because of siblings being home and children, parents being overwhelmed and so forth. Um, so it was just very interesting for me to show up and be like, I am a parent. I am here. I want to be a part of this. I need to be the first contact. So I uh, want to get into a little uh, post New Hope, um, Kiara first returned home and I asked her this question and she said, you'd probably have a much different answer uh, and, and had a different experience uh, than she did when she first returned home. Um, so what was that like for you, You know, your relationship, that dynamic when she first came back into the house uh, after New Hope, um, you know, the first whatever it was, couple months, couple years, um, you know, obviously she was still in high school at the time. Uh, but, but for you, you know, what, what was that experience like? It was both uh, tremendously exciting and horribly terrifying, all rolled into one. Yeah. <laughs> um, because even though I trust, I, I was, you know, I trust us and I knew the work that we had been doing um, and I knew that we had grown, you know, in leaps and bounds. We still hadn't been left to our own device. <laughs> right. And I was like, we going to backslide and go back to because of course when you're in survival mode, you acquire all these habits and ways of communicating that are so dysfunctional and so unhealthy. And you you have to relearn. And so I even as a parent had to relearn this stuff, which wasn't all her going and changing and coming back. I had to also, of course. 
And so I did not realize when she came home that she almost had to be deinstitutionalized um, from turning lights off, not requesting to take a shower. She once yelled from her room, can I cross? I'm like, what are we talking about? And she wanted to come out of her room, but she had just gotten so accustomed to having to ask permission for everything, rightfully so, and having automatic lights so she didn't have to turn them off. Uh, and I did not think about any of those things. Because of course, I have never been in those shoes, so mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. Um, so that part was very different and um, a little bit shocking. So I was like, okay, we're, we're like there, we're at ground level building up. You know, if we're, if we're asking to, to, to move in a 925 square foot apartment room by room for, by, per, for, you know, verbally permission wise, I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and so we had in-home therapy um, as well as uh, out of the home therapy for a long time. It was very, very extreme, three to four times a week in the home uh, for, I want to say, at least six weeks, probably longer, with a wonderful um, social worker who came to just walk us through things and be that safe, uh, objective third party. If we had had any challenges, we could bring them to each other then and know that the other wasn't going to be overly reactive so that was extremely helpful for us. Um, but I watched her like a hawk. I didn't want to, but I did. And I could not relax into my baby's home. It was like, she's home, but, or when's it gonna? And when do right. I, it, mm -hmm. so it was a lot of two steps forward, one step back, two, you know, but trying to hide that I was feeling that way because I didn't want her to think that I didn't believe in her, but I needed to be ready. You know, I, I was kind of like, uh, Prepared for war, even though we're in time of peace. <laughs> so, so let me let me build on that just a little bit. Um, the the in home therapies of interest to me, but also, I didn't include this in my last answer. One of your questions around um, access and visitation. One of the things we've started in the past year, I think, is we called it the Bridge Program, which is different than what I mentioned before. But the bridge program puts a professional in the county, in the area where kids are coming to New Hope from. So let's say Wake County. Yeah. We have a, a mental health professional that works with the families of the kids who are in our care. So there could be a kid in New Hope, Carolinas, uh, getting services, but we're also working with the family while that child's in our care in, in, yeah. in Rock Hill. And working yeah. with the family to be that bridge and then also do warm handoffs with the school system, with uh, the the intensive or the in-home therapists or whatever it may or may not be. So just going back to that, that seems like a better model than not having anybody helping you out during that time. I mean, that's oh, going to be better. Sure. Oh, my gosh. That would have been a godsend because... I mean, if I said it once, I said it a thousand times to her. I said, we are the blind leading the blind right now, but I'm here for you. You know, <laughs> like, right? we're doing the best we can with what we got. Um, but yes, having that bridge is a perfect word for it. Um, bridge the gap. Right. And so the in-home family therapy sound like it was a real win for you guys coming out of a residential setting. I'm, yeah. I'm in, and I always picture I'm married with three kids, right? And um, I'm, if we needed help, I think it would, it, it seems like an awkward thing to have another adult coming into your home to, to offer services and a, uh, guidance or whatever. Can you speak to that a little bit? It seems awkward, but maybe it's not. No, it was very awkward. I'm very, I'm extremely grateful that it was the same woman throughout because you could at least get to know that one person and establish rapport. Um we weren't given choice as to who came. It was just like, this is who's available. This is who's coming. So it was, it was wonderful that it ended up being someone that we both could connect uh, with and to could trust. And um, I think for Kiara, it was helpful that it was a woman of color and that it was a younger woman in our circumstance. So she didn't feel that she was so outdated with what she may or may not know and all these stereotypes and go with, you know, having older people around telling you what to do when you're a teenager. Um, so I think that was very beneficial um, for us. Of course, it was 
horribly awkward. But we had been in treatment one form or another for years at that point. The treatment part wasn't awkward. It was just opening our doors, <laughs> saying, come right. on, come and see, you know, literally see our mess, come and be a part of it, help us figure things out. Uh, it was different. Yeah, I could see that. But it was convenient because all you had to do was be home. <laughs> right, right. You know? My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional, and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building, as well as our residents and their families. My why is a, because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here at New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. Uh, you, you touched on this uh, at the beginning, and I don't even know if I, I was aware of this. Maybe Kiara mentioned it when we we spoke to her. But you guys are having simultaneous uh, pregnancies that, that, that I can only imagine strengthen your bond and connection uh, on a, a completely different level that you know Mike and I can't can't even fathom. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's just no way. But uh, some of you know, those life accomplishments for her, you know, seeing her graduate high school, college, uh, you know, getting married, uh, you know, ha having her, her daughter, uh, you know, obviously for her, I'm sure it was tremendous uh, achievements and accomplishments and just, you know, you know, moving beyond, uh, you know, new hope and uh, everything from the past. But for you, you know, as her mother, seeing her. Uh, achieve these things, you know, how, how much did it mean to you uh, just, you know, as part of her journey to, you know, really come out on, on, on the other end of things and really just smash life. You're trying to make me cry, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not trying to, but uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, it's just, it, it was on my mind. I was curious about it. Um, I am extremely proud of her. Uh, I always knew I've always believed in that, that young woman, <laughs> my baby girl turned adult um, she's even going through the challenges. I could still see, you know, her beautiful underlayers, <laughs> you know, even when she was slamming the door in my face and saying, I hate you. I want to go into the foster care system. Like literally those words came out of her mouth numerous times. I still was like, baby, come here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, so yes, the, her, the trajectory of her life, the, the her accomplishments, her, her extreme wisdom on so many different levels, um, the way she's choosing to mother, the the man that she's chosen to have a family with, all of it have it's just been so beautiful to witness. And there are numerous times. I mean, she's always been one of my best teachers, but there are numerous times in recent months and years that I turn to her for advice because she is nailing parts of life that I haven't figured out at fifty. <laughs> So it's very humbling. It's beautiful. And um, then to have our girls together, of course, is kind of like the icing on the cake, of course. Um, and I never in a million years would I thought that this is what it would look like. You know, I was the one that wasn't supposed to be able to have any children. And here I am with two. Here you are. <laughs> right, right. Did, did you guys find out you were pregnant at the same time or was there a little bit of a, a, a delay in between? A gap. There was a small gap and she was a little relieved that it was me that was oh, pregnant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then shortly oh, after. Oh gosh, we laugh about that. And then it was like, okay, you know? Right. Right. So it's, it was, it was, there was a very, very small window of time. I found out very late into my pregnancy. Okay. that I was expecting. We thought it was something else going on medically with me. And so 
they're six months apart in age, but I didn't find out until 21 weeks gestation that I was expecting. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> well, those two, those two are going to have quite a journey together. Yes. And, and I, I, I mean, I'm sure you think of that, like the future for your young babies are going to, it's just so bright. Um, and I think you and your daughter should write a book. <laughs> I think you guys have something to offer. Uh, thank you. And so you're talking about genetics and, and the next generation. You better believe I've been watching these little girls. You know, they're on the one's on the cusp of turning seven. The other one's a little over six and a half. And it's, you know, they're right at that age where precocious puberty is going to be happening, specifically with my little one. She seems to be advanced. And I'm like, oh, some of this is feeling very familiar. Oh, Let's see yeah. what this is about. But I don't have the same um, fear as I did round one mm -hmm. because been there, done that. And now I've got Kiara too. So right. she's right. got her on, on her little sister, Kylina, as do I. And um, it's going to look a little different regardless of what comes our way. Absolutely. Well, uh, I, I don't know if Mike had anything else, but I'm, I'm full of wonderful information <laughs> and stories. I really am. So, uh, <laughs> I'll try to wrap it here uh, as we do on this podcast, stuff that matters and ask you that, that question, as I mentioned before we started recording here. Uh, so and give you a chance to recap your overall message, kind of hammer home the things that are most important to you. Uh, so for you, Nina, what is the stuff that matters? The stuff that matters is uh, family first and uh, listening to your child when they come to you with challenges, being open and approachable, um, doing your homework to research who's going to help them professionally, mm -hmm. research medication. And um, when you're shopping for a treatment facility, do just that comparative shop so that you can find the right fit for you and your family and keep hoping and praying and and reaching for the stars and believing in your child, make sure your child knows that you believe in him or her because that you're their soft place to land. And that will go a long, long way. And make sure you got some support for yourself, parents. Yep. You need it. We need each other. What an awesome job today. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.